Well, thanks, Jesse, and thanks, Aaron. Um, Mark is actually preaching at another church this morning down in Colorado Springs. That's why he's not here this morning, but um, I have the honor and privilege of bringing God's word to you all this morning. I hope you all are doing well. Um, If it's your first time here, we are thankful to have you. Um, If you've been with us before, we are also thankful to have you back again. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know that we've been walking through a series called, I still have my mask on. Church, you need to tell me I still have my mask on. (laughs) It's not part of my illustration. Um, yeah, so you know that we've been walking through a series called The King in the Kingdom, where we've looked, taken a look at Jesus' life here on earth and the, the kingdom that he's establishing. And we're specifically looking at the, the Gospel of Matthew. So this morning we're going to be in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. So if you turn there with me real quick. Um, and as you do, I just want to share two quick stories with you. Um, one is about a man in the early 1500s. Many of you may have heard of him named William Tyndale. William Tyndale was responsible for translating and printing the Bibles from Latin into English. And it, as we know William Tyndale, William Tyndale has been known throughout history, but a man that we don't know about is a man named Humphrey Monmouth. Have any of you heard of Humphrey Monmouth? So he was a, a very wealthy businessman in the early 1500s in England. He was a clothing merchant, and he met William Tyndale at church one Sunday and was just captivated by William's vision to print Bibles into English, even though it was illegal at the time to print Bibles from Latin into English. He was captivated by this and knew that, man, I feel like God is really calling me to give up this, this wealth, this prestige that I have and partner with, with William Tyndale in this. And so Humphrey not only funded the entire endeavor of, of printing these Bibles into English, but he used his, his fleet of merchant ships to smuggle Bibles into England so that the word of God could be spread throughout England. So despite Humphrey's wealth and his security, this ease of life that would have been just so easy for him to have, he, he gave it up because he loved and treasured Christ more than his own wealth. And the, the second story is about, um, you may have heard of John Newton. John Newton lived during the 1700s. He's very famous for writing a, um, a famous hymn. Um, and like John Newton, um, there was a man named John Thornton who also lived in the late or the 1700s. And in the late 1700s, Newton and Thornton ended up meeting. And Thornton was actually the wealthiest man in all of England in the late 1700s. He was 30 years old, so he was young and he was rich. And he was just this entrepreneur that started businesses and just made tons of money. Well, he heard about John Newton's love for God, his love for the gospel. And he said, I want to, I want to work with this guy, similarly to Humphrey Monmouth. And so Thornton gave up a portion of his wealth in order to support the work that, that John Newton was doing. And so he, he funded the first thousand copies of John Newton's famous hymn. And once it was printed, it didn't catch much attention in England, but once it came to America, and landed in America, ended up becoming the most loved and recorded hymn in all of history. And that hymn is Amazing Grace. And John Thornton is, is the one who none of us have heard of, but he is responsible for funding that entire 
printing of the first thousand copies. And this is the reason that we have that beautiful hymn here today. And so I believe that, that these men were convinced of the treasure of Christ more than any, any worldly possession or pleasure that they can have. They, they gave it up that the word of God would go forth. And I, my hope this morning in this passage is that through the spirit and through the reading of this passage, that the Lord would stir in us a very similar desire that we would see that Christ is more valuable and he's a greater treasure than anything in this world that we could find. And so starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 19, and we're just going to go down three verses to the end of this um, short passage. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So just imagine the scene with me real quick. So Jesus had just gotten finished teaching on divorce. He had a big crowd around him teaching on divorce. I can imagine that the, that the setting is pretty somber, that it's, you could probably hear a pin drop and Jesus is there proclaiming it all out. There's probably a long silence and the disciples begin to hear this like kind of scuffling behind them and kind of some chattering and it just starts getting louder and louder. And and one of the disciples sees a kid throw dirt at another kid and they're all running around in this, in this scene as Jesus is, is teaching and the disciples are getting furious. They're like, no way these kids are going to disrupt this teacher teaching about all these amazing things. Like, where are these kids' parents? Like, get your kids, get control of your kids, like in, instruct some discipline or something. So the disciples can't even handle it because they're like, no, we've got to protect this precious time of Jesus. And Jesus is like, slow down. <laughs> let the children come to me. And I, I would have been right there with the disciples. Like, let Jesus teach because that's what he's here for is to teach. But Jesus has a very different um, view of children. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. And in the gospel of Mark, um, or in the gospel of Luke, we say, we see that Jesus not only says that such belongs the kingdom of God, but whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. And this has got to be, this has got to be, um, very different from what the disciples and everyone else thought during the time. Like when they think about someone who's religious or someone who loves God, it's their, their vision is not really of a child, but, but Jesus seeing the children and, and one thing that are three things that I pulled out from what Jesus could possibly mean by this is that one that Jesus or that children are way more accepting of the truth than, than us adults who are, who are constantly thinking through like, well, is that really true or not? We're very skeptical, but children, you tell a child something and if they respect you, they're going to, they're going to believe they're very believable. Like they're going to believe the truth that you're, that you're telling them. Children are also very quick to forgive. And I, I see this every single day with my own kids. I'll sin against them time and time and time again. And 13 seconds later, my kid's asking for a snack. Like he's forgiven and totally moved on. Like nothing ever happened, happened to him. But I know that I hold on to grudges for weeks. So Jesus is identifying these, these things that, are, that children are, are really modeling. Like what it means to be a kingdom citizen. 
And the last thing, the last, I guess, principle or, or, or item that, that Jesus wants, to, wants us to see here kind of flows through the rest of this passage. And it's this idea that children, I, I don't, I've never seen a child, and I don't know if you've ever seen a child that's ever been in debt. Like when, when you give a child something, when you give them a gift, they're never like, oh man, how can I ever repay you for this? Like, you're amazing. Like, let me take you out to dinner or here's five bucks to repay you for this awesome blessing that you've given me. No, like children are asking for another one. They're asking for more. They, they, they don't stop because, and, and that's what I think what Jesus is getting at is that we need to receive the kingdom of God like that. We need to receive the kingdom of God. Like it's something that we can never repay. Like if we receive it like a child, if we can receive it as an inheritance, as a gift, realizing that it cannot be repaid. I think that, that this idea should radically change how we view Jesus as our king. Like, that, like most kings in this world, they're looking for the people to do something for them. Jesus is like, no, like I, I'm giving you everything. You have to do nothing. And so here we are at the rich young ruler, um, starting in verse 16. I'll read it for us. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, I have all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Then the young man heard this. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this is a, this is a heavy text. Many of you may have studied this before or heard it preached before. Um, I think two things that we need to bring out immediately is who is this man? And then who is this man talking to? Obviously Jesus. But at first, let's look at who this man is. So just from the title, we know that the man is, he's rich and he's young. And through his dialogue with Jesus, he's confident that he has kept most of the law. So he is very, very religious. He was most likely because at a young age, it's, it's pretty hard to stumble into wealth. And so he's, he's most likely coming from a family of prestige and wealth. And at some point in his life, that wealth was not satisfying to him. It didn't, it didn't satisfy the desires of his heart. And so he turned very religious at some point and began upholding the law and saying, well, well maybe, maybe if I do good, Maybe if I go into the, into the temple, maybe if I do all these things, then, then I'll be satisfied. Then God will satisfy my heart. But we clearly see that that's not the case because he's coming to Jesus saying that he's lacking something. And I believe that, that we would be dishonest if we did not identify with this man in some way as we, as we finish reading through this passage. So believing 
that, that Jesus is, is just a good teacher who's in, who comes into the synagogue and he, he's thinking of Jesus as just some normal rabbi, but quickly Jesus asks him when, when the man approaches Jesus and says, teacher, or in the, the gospels of Mark and Luke, he says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus asks, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and that is God alone. So Jesus is immediately revealing to this guy that he is God. And he's not some normal teacher. And so this guy's in for a rude awakening because he came to Jesus thinking he was going to have his goodness and his being blessed by God kind of persona of being this good, rich, wealthy man that he was going to have it justified by this good teacher. And he was going to get a pat on the back and sin on his way. But Jesus, Jesus wants none of that because Jesus is not a religious teacher that's going to justify this man's sins. Jesus's only interest is this man's heart and this man's obedience. Jesus's only interest in this moment is to get to the root of this man's heart and to show him that what he's trusting is, is, is not going to last. It's dissatisfying and to truly, to truly be satisfied. He can't trust in his own self-righteousness. He can't trust in his own possessions. And Jesus is going to get to the heart of that. And so Jesus continues If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man responds, which ones, which, which ones do I keep teacher? What behavioral changes do I need to make in my life to get God to do for me? What I need him to do for me. What box do I need to check in order to get what I want? What prayer do I need to pray to be good enough for you to sign off on me to receive eternal life in heaven. Like this is, this is the personality or the, the, the response that this man is having towards, towards Jesus' questions. So it's, he's almost like puffing up his chest and saying like, like just bring the law before me and I'll show you how good I am. And Jesus is saying, no, but Jesus continues playing the game and with this man and, and lists off the, these six commandments that you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And lastly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which that last one is really the summary of the, of the preceding ones that if you're not loving your neighbor, then Jesus has a lot of hard things to say about that. If you hate your brother, you're actually a murderer. If you lust, you're committing adultery, all these things. So you're actually, if you, if you haven't done the last one, then you, or if you've broken any of the first ones, then you've broken the last one because you haven't loved your neighbor well. But this man says his response is all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Remember this man approached Jesus and said, good teacher. He's, he's identifying Jesus as being good, but this man is now proving to Jesus his own goodness and our goodness, man's goodness can never compare to the goodness of God. And so it's, it's so interesting because like at this point in this moment, like there's, there's few things that are, that are less like Christ and God belittling than saying, Hey Jesus, here's my, here's my good deeds. Will you accept these? Will you accept 
these good deeds. It's kind of like a child coming to you and saying, Hey, I know that you've provided a house for me. So here's, here's a cup of dirt or, or whatever it may be that the kid is trying to offer you. It just, it's, it's worthless. It's garbage. But at this point in, in the gospel of Mark, in the same passage, it says that Jesus looking at him, loved him. Like Jesus loved him. Like, is that not the heart of Christ? Is it not the heart of Christ that he, that Jesus would love him so much that he's going to lead him down this road to show him his idols, to point out the idols of this man's heart and then lead him to show him what, what, how to receive eternal life. And ultimately in six days from this point, Jesus is going to be hung on a cross and die for this man's sin, for the sins of, of everyone in this room and everyone that's around Jesus at this time. So isn't it so much like the heart of Jesus for him to think in his heart and in his mind, like, I love this man, despite this man's self-righteousness and thinking he can do it on his own. So Jesus continues, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What Jesus is asking this man to do is he's asking him to repent and to obey. He's saying, take all your possessions, all your goodness, all your morality and throw it at my feet and come and follow me. That stuff is, is garbage and is not going to get you salvation. It's not going to get you eternal life. If you really want to know what eternal life is, I want you to grab all your stuff, get all your possessions. And I, and I want to show you your idolatry and, and show you how unsatisfying this stuff is. And I want you to come and follow me. So the question is posed to the man, will you come and follow me? Because Jesus just told us that the only way for sinners to be made perfect is by following Jesus, right? If you would be perfect, repent and follow me. And we know that like, despite the fact that all creation responds perfectly obedient to the, to the bidding in, in the call of God, like God said snow and it snowed and God says for the sun to rise and it rises everything responds perfectly to the, to the, to the bidding in, in the, the voice of God. But this man, this man sees the grandeur and the majesty of his own possessions. He sees that man's approval is worth far more than anything else in this world. And what does he do? He, he walks, he walks away from Christ. Like, can this man not see who he's talking to right now? Like, does he not know this man that's in front of him, who's, who's showing him everything that he needs to know. In a, in a quote by Jonathan Edwards, um, Edwards says, everything that, is lovely in, everything that is lovely in God is in Christ, and everything that is or can be lovely in any man is in him. For he is man as well as God. And he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, and in every way, the most excellent man that ever was. Like, how insane is it that this man is standing before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the very creator of, of all the cosmos, and, and he's sitting there thinking about all of his possessions 
and how good he is. Like you cannot, none of us in here, if if you claim Christ as your Lord, none of us have come into an encounter with the grace of Christ and walked away unchanged. Like we can't, we can't encounter Christ and his goodness and his glory and walk away completely unchanged with our life and move on. Because Jesus, Jesus knew what was killing this man. And it, was, it wasn't like Jesus was trying to kill this guy's joy. He was actually trying to set him free from the things that were killing him. And so church, I, I pray that, that verse 22, that when the young man heard this, that he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I pray that we would, that we as a church would pray strongly against this. That we would pray strongly against our love of possessions, not just ours, but for our community. I don't know of a single person in, in, in my neighborhood who does not have great possessions. And so this is, this is, not, this is not something that we need to take, take lightly as a church. And also, we're not a church to tell you what, what size house to live in or what kind of car to drive. Like, clearly from the first two stories that we heard, that these men who were loaded like they were so wealthy they gave a portion of their wealth to to something good and so we're not saying that wealth and possessions are bad at all but if they are god if they if they consume and take over your life then church we need to pray strongly that that is not the case in this church and in our community that that we would truly treasure christ above all else that christ would be lord it, it reminds me of, of what Paul says in, in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let that be our prayer for, for this church and for the communities that we live in. So continuing on in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so in this, Jesus, when he's talking with his disciples, things are just going from bad to worse. They're going from difficult, like it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God to a camel fitting through the eye of a needle, impossible. Like Jesus is, is hitting on those extremes. And if you know anything about my wife and I and our story, you know, we've been around a lot of camels and, and these things are massive. They're massive. They're huge. And I have to this day not found a needle big enough for one of these creatures to walk through. And so the, the disciples at this point, they, they know Jesus's analogy pretty well. They know that it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they're looking at this man who just walked away sorrowfully from Jesus. And they're like, they're completely distraught. They can't even handle like what Jesus has just done. Like, if anybody should receive the, the kingdom of God, it's this man. It's the man who's upheld the whole law. It's the man who's got the wealth and clearly he's been blessed by God, right? 
But being successful, what Jesus is trying to get at is that being successful or being a good person does not save you. And it will not sustain you. It will not satisfy you. So much in this Christian culture that we live in today, there's, there's all these plans and steps of, hey, here's five ways to be a better man. Or eight steps to your best life now. Or you want to be a good wife or mom? Then here's these 17 steps that you can do to, to, to get your goal. Or just being a better person. Like, is that, but is that really trusting in the mercy of God that is seen through Jesus on the cross? Or is that trusting in the confidence that we are a good man or a good woman or a good student or a good employee? Like, what are we trusting in? In church, I got to be honest, like I have, I've wrestled with this passage, not just for the past couple weeks, but for years now. Because I identify with this man. Like possessions have a hold on my heart. Goodness and morality has a hold on my heart. If I can, if I can seek after man's approval and actually get that, if I can have people like me and have friends, like that's, that's good and enjoyable. And like, that's something that my heart craves. And so that's why this passage makes me tremble. It makes me think like, God, you just told us that that's, it's impossible with man to receive the kingdom of God. It's impossible if I continue on that road towards possessions and towards man's approval, that it is impossible. So the question is, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? And we know that Jesus already gave us the answer. That if you would be perfect, if you would be saved, repent and come and follow me. And, and, and we, we should know that this is not a call to, to ultimately giving up happiness and giving up fun and giving up friends and all this stuff. Jesus' reward is, is far greater. Jesus says that you will have treasure in heaven. So the answer of who can be saved is, is those who repent of your goodness and trust in the righteousness of Christ and come and follow him. Because if we're trusting, if we're trusting in the world, if we're trusting in, in the ways that we can become a better man or a better woman and just becoming a good person, what happens when your three-year-old gets cancer or what happens when you have a miscarriage or your marriage is on the rocks or you've prayed to the Lord to give you a spouse and he has not answered you, or if you're seeking a job and you can't, and you, and the Lord's not answering. What happens when your life is an absolute shambles? There's nothing to grab onto. You, your, your possessions and your goodness are not going to satisfy you in that. We must cling to Christ because there is one. There is one. We know him. He's, t- he's mentioned in this passage several times who says, come and follow me. Come all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly. I am the good shepherd. I created you. I know you. I know that I know the pain that you're feeling right now. Jesus is calling each of us to come and abide in his words and that he will come and abide in you. He's saying like, I love you, right? And I will give you treasure in heaven. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Like that's good news church. So as we close, in the gospel of Matthew about 
in this same passage of the, of the rich young man, about 10 verses later, there's another story of a, of a rich man that many of us are, are very familiar with. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And in this story, you have this, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he is very rich. And he hears that Jesus is, is coming into town, and so he is fighting to make his way through the crowd to see Jesus. He climbs up into this tree, and Jesus, anticipating, knowing that, that where Zacchaeus is, because he's very perceptive, and he comes under the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to stay in your house tonight. And Zacchaeus' response, was it like, oh, Jesus, come on. Like, I don't have time for that. I got, I got friends coming over and I got stuff to buy on Amazon. And no, like he ran down the tree and he received Christ with all joy, right? And Jesus later says, or, or, or Zacchaeus, after Jesus comes into his home, Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, I am giving away half of my goods to the poor. And Jesus responds to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so here we have a beautiful picture, this, this really contradiction of seeing this man who's trying to earn God's favor and trying to be blessed by God in, in his own way, in his own time. And then you have Zacchaeus, who's willing to, to lay it all down and, and receive Christ with all joy. So he, we see the picture come to fruition where with man, it is absolutely impossible. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but... All things are possible through God, right? Because we just saw it with Zacchaeus. And so church, I want to ask us, let's repent of our goodness and repent of our love for things and, and, and possessions and stuff. It's not bad to have them, but it is, it is bad to love them more than Christ. And so let's come and follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus with the joy of Zacchaeus and let's follow Jesus with the joy of a child that we read about earlier. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into communion. Father in heaven, God, you alone are holy and righteous and good. Lord, we do thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your love for us and your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you don't allow us to sit in in our in being satisfied with things that are temporal and that will end up in a thrift store or a garbage dump, God. Thank you for not, not allowing us to sit in that, God. Thank you for your word that is clear. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would stir in us affections for and a, and a deep love for Christ and that we would follow him wherever he leads us, God. Go before us today. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name.